Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Brigitte Jonstotter from Iceland. She is a member of the Icelandic Parliament. She is a writer, an activist, an artist, a web developer. Actually, most important, she's a poet. And she's here today to talk to us about freedom on the Internet, what's going on in Iceland, and press havens. We're going to talk about journalist injunctions and how, in fact, whistleblowing has become criminalized. She is a founder of the Modern Media Initiative, which is about raising the standards for the freedom of the Internet and Internet environments around the world. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, Birgitta, to It's Rainmaking Time. Good evening in Iceland. Yeah, hi. Very happy to be on the show. I hope that uh, we will have an interesting um, time discussing these very important issues. You consider yourself a poet first, which I think is so interesting to be a member of parliament, but to consider yourself a poet first. This reminds me of Thich Nhat Hanh. Are you familiar with Thich Nhat Hanh? Czech Havel or from uh, Czech or Actually, Thich Nhat Hanh is a Buddhist. He's a oh, peace okay. activist. And he uh-huh. fled Vietnam because there was so much killing going on. He watched people being brutally raped and murdered. And he fled to France where he has something called Plum Village, which is a monastery meditation sanctuary where he teaches peace. And people come from all over the world to learn practical applications or what you would call the real engagement of peace. He is a fantastic teacher. He's written maybe 50 books, and he considers himself a poet first. <laughs> so you're in good company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have heard of him. would love to learn more about uh, his teachings about peace. I just recently said in an interview about why I chose in my parliamentary group to nominate Bradley Manning for the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, most people think that the last person to be nominated was Obama, which is, of course, not true. There have been uh, two more awards after that. But, you know, if the Nobel Peace Prize is uh, sort of a political statement by the committee or an award for achieved work, I had said that, you know, the process of peace is an ongoing process. Uh, And, of course, peace and war is both very political. And so thus the award will always be political to some degree. A statement for peace is a political statement. One of the things I've learned through all of this crash course in being a parliamentarian is that I learned, uh, because being political has become a dirty word. It was absolutely nothing until recently when people realized that they have to reclaim their power uh, But being political actually only means having opinions. And it's not about party politics, but the party politics have sort of stolen away from us this very important um, uh, way of expressing our uh, opinions. And we should be political. We should have opinions. Uh, And it doesn't mean that these opinions, even if they are political, uh, are party political. I'll tell you, It's Rainmaking Time covers a lot of solutions and discoveries and ancient and new knowledge. And I noticed that I had a hesitation when the show was founded to do any journalistic work in the area of politics. And I said, why does somebody like me who's very worldly 
have an aversion to it. And then I realized that when I was inviting different people from very different disciplines, very different businesses and industries who were pioneering things and who were really on the edge of new discoveries and bringing them in, that they were facing political fallout. They were becoming victims. They were attacked by governments. They were attacked by industries. Most of the people that I interviewed were politicized in some way, in a negative way, because they're dancing on the edge of whatever it is that is clarifying solutions and discoveries and new knowledge or bringing ancient knowledge to the foreground. So even considering to do this interview with you today, I have to tell you, I had to take a deep breath and say, oh my God, under the National Defense Authorization Act, am I going to be arrested for treason for even talking to you? And it hurts me, and I'm sure it hurts you, that many people that we would consider are strong, they have a strong inner core, they know who they are, they're free-thinking people, are concerned for their well-being to have discussion. Yeah, it's it's uh, such a sad development. And that means that we also have to connect and, uh, you know, both locally and globally, these people that are in this space. And I think that uh, it's also um, very important, uh, you know, because we're living at extremely critical times. We are really, as humanity, at crossroads. Uh, and we will be faced with, you know, extreme extremes on all levels because we are sort of reaching a balance. And before you get balance, you have all this jiggering and, uh, and these uh, conflicts. And so at the same time, we're seeing all these victories. We're also seeing all these defeats for peace and for um, uh, people being able to work in unity on issues that are very, very important for all of humanity. And also everything that's important for humanity is also very important for us on a very um, local, uh, personal level because it's all interrelated. And I think it's so important to remember that. Um, and I think, you know, watching... Um, you know, I have so many friends in the United States, uh, and I have lived there and I have family there. Uh, and some of my greatest inspirations come from there. But at the same time, I can see the oppression that's going on. Uh, and I'm deeply concerned because the United States is one thing that we don't have in Iceland. And they have a lot of guns uh, and a lot of extremes because you have so many people. Uh, so I think it is very important that those that are for peace um, and for um, other ways of achieving change than through violence uh, work very closely together. Uh, I am being persecuted by the U.S. government uh, because of my involvement with WikiLeaks. Uh, um, by simply, you know, the only thing that I did was to help co-produce a video, uh, the collateral murder video that showed hideous war crimes, which should have, you know, been through the legal channels made public years, a uh, couple of years prior. Um, so we're dealing with a system that's like not working for the general public, but working for itself. But the good th news is that it's being exposed and as we get more and more information about how things work, we have better tools to change it. After everything that has transpired with Bradley Manning, the release of the collateral murder videos, what's happening with Julian Assange, 
you're a mother of a little boy, right? And as a mother of a little boy, you have a different level of concern for your life than just anybody. You're not a single guy, free and clear to do and say whatever you want. You have a young child that's a core part of your life. How do you balance this? And are you concerned for the two of you? Well, actually, I do have three kids. I have one uh, son that's turning 21 and a daughter that's uh, 17. And then I have okay, one I'm sorry that's 11. about that. <laughs> uh, that's okay. Uh, and uh, well, I usually try to leave my kids out of the debate. Sure. But I think uh, I don't worry too much about, you know, uh, the issues that I, I have with U.S. authorities because I know that I haven't done anything illegal. And uh, I will not allow what's happening um, to me on a personal level uh, influence me or make it me less free to speak and say what I feel is important. Uh, I obviously would not go uh, on a holiday to the United States with my son. <laughs> uh, but I am unfortunate in the sense that, you know, I don't feel, because I am a parliamentarian, I don't, I'm even going uh, to the United States as a part of the UN uh, delegation from Iceland um, later this year, because I get a special visa, like all parliamentarians that go to the UN Assembly. Um, so I'm going and I'm hoping that when I, you know, when I go that I can express and work with my concerns in relation to everybody that uses the internet, um, everybody that has any digital data on them, I think it is so extremely important that we understand that we do not have the same rights with our online content as we have with our uh, offline life. And uh, when it comes to jurisdictions, when it comes to the courts, and when it comes to the accessibility of governments to go and uh, gather and mine this information, and I think most people will think, oh, it's never going to happen to me. You know, I haven't done anything wrong. Well, you know, I've got news for you. I have not done anything that's illegal. And still U.S. authorities have managed to, through legal ways, uh, to have access to my personal back-end information in relation to my Twitter account, which means that they can actually, through that accessibility to my information, know where I was and with whom I was. Are you serious? Yes. How would they get the back end through Twitter? Can you explain it to us? Well, this was uh, this was a story that or a development that broke out uh, early last year. I remember the story, but I just don't know the details of how they would ever have access to the back end stuff. Well, the thing is that uh, like Twitter was actually originally requested to hand over all this information a year ago without my knowledge within three. Uh, I think three days without my, me knowing uh, that U.S. authorities uh, demanded to get this information. Now, what Twitter did was that they actually took it to court and unsealed secrecy in relation to this order. And thus, I could get uh, lawyers to help me with the case. And we took it through three different court stages and we lost it in every one of them. And, um, and uh, I think it uh, is a deep concern for us like you know even if you know i don't want to have a special uh treatment as a member of parliament but it is still very important that i as a member of parliament can be sure that my voters and those that contact me 
through digital ways can do so without having to fear that somebody is actually going to be reading uh, and scrutinizing what they uh, confine to me. Because we do get a lot of very uh, sensitive material from people all the time. I get, you know, people sending me very private uh, information about them when they're asking me to look at, you know, why the laws are wrong and why, you know, it's imp impacting their life in a very serious way. So I think um, and the fact that uh, we lost it and had to hand over this information, which just happened recently, um, uh, should be of concern for everybody since they can access my information legally like this. They can do it with anybody without anybody ever knowing. Well, let's take Facebook, for example, which is a very curious animal now. <laughs> yeah. How do you view at this time Facebook and government access to Facebook and Facebook's possible involvement in government searches? And I think both Facebook and Google um, are extremely vulnerable systems to abuse because they collect, uh, like, for example, in the case of Facebook, I know that there have been agents that create false uh, accounts pretending to be somebody else uh, and together information about people. So not only the sort of FBI or CAA do this, but also local police authorities and so forth. Uh, so you always have to be aware of, you know, who you are befriending if you want to have a personal private account there. Now, like in my case, I have a completely open account and I accept anybody to be my friend unless they're like, hideously racist or something like that. Um, then then I, 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 I do not accept their friendship. But uh, I think... Uh, it's a very dangerous tool, and I really, uh, that's one of the things that me and my lawyers are currently fighting for in the United States, is that we do get information about the three other companies that were requested to hand over information to me. I, I don't even have information about which companies these are, and I strongly suspect that that could be Facebook and Google, because, you know, in reality, the information they got out of Twitter is, is not very much. Uh, compared to what they could get out of uh, Google. And uh, because, you know, through Google, you not only have like all your searches and your behavior online is uh, attached to your profile, uh, but also very many people have their emails there and so forth. So I think um, uh, people have to be aware of this, that this could, if somebody wants to build a case on you, even if you haven't done anything, uh, except being, you know, uh, with resistance to authority, if the authority is uh, uh, or corporations are breaking the law on you, uh, if you're an activist and so forth for peace or anti-war or anti-corporations, uh, like there's a big fight in the States now against Monsanto. Yes. Uh, you know, because that's a very, very important fight. Uh, and uh, But these corporations have huge interests and they have massive uh, uh, influence on politicians and policymakers. So I think uh, anybody that wants to raise their voice about anything has to be concerned. And that's why we have to make sure on both, uh, you know, country by country base but also on a global base that we as citizens have the same citizens' rights online with our content as offline. And I, I urge people to, when they use any 
any form of communications, communications online, be it through email, Facebook, Skype, um, Google, anything. Just make sure that you will never post anything you don't want on a postcard. That's yeah. how serious this is. And most people are not aware of this. I did a piece with the owners of StartPage last year, which is an anonymous search engine. They were under attack in Europe for what they're doing. They don't collect cookies. They don't collect sources or anything. It's a window into other search engines, but it's anonymous search. And I highly oh, recommend I it to people because... That's what it's there for. It's not about hiding. It's about saying it's none of your business. What you're searching is your business. It's called Start Page. Exactly. Start Page. Yeah. Yes. I have a look at it. Because, I mean, let's say you're, you're a journalist and you're doing a research and a piece, investigative journalism on, uh, you know, terrorists or pedophiles or whatever. That's all attached to you as a person. And let's say you're writing something about a corporation that uh, has uh, big influence on policymakers and so forth, uh, and you know you're revealing how they really are. This stuff that's attached to your profile can very easily be used against you. And I think people have to understand that this can be used against anybody, even if you're just go doing nothing that's like anybody's business except your work or your recreation or whatever. That's all your activities online. Even, you know, they can even go into your computer and log everything you write on your keyboard. It's so easy. And there was actually, I'm reading a very interesting book uh, called Gideon's Spies. Uh, it's about Mossad. And what Mossad did years and years ago is that they helped create through a sort of a bogus company, uh, a system for all the security services, all the spy services around the world that was uh, about tracking people and their activities. What the the uh, Mossad did was that they created a backdoor into, so they knew about all secret services and activities that had this uh, software called Promise. So, um, you know, everything is possible. If you don't have any ethical standards on uh, honoring people's privacy, um, which usually governments don't do. And in particular, the more oppressive the governments become, the less they care about uh, people's right for privacy. Uh, and, and that is a deep concern um, watching what is going on in the United States. I'm, 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 I often compare the United States to China when it comes to these issues. I really wish that there is a way to turn this track around because uh, uh, for many of us all over the world, the United States used to be an incredible source of information when it came to freedom of expression and speech. Um, not so much information, uh, but in particularly freedom of uh, expression and speech. And um, that has all been jeopardized and it all started with the Patriot Act and it's just been going downhill ever since. One of the phenomenons that I've noticed when you start to talk about privacy with people is that because people are kind of locked into their day-to-day -day life, they're hooked up psychologically and otherwise into Twitter, into Facebook, into Google. So it's now kind of integrated in people's day-to-day -day life. And with that, 
has come blind trust, complacency, no vigilance with respect to their privacy. And the fundamental assumption for many people here is I have nothing to hide and it doesn't matter. Well, let's say you're working on a major business deal that's international. Let's say you're bringing together a disruptive technology that could create life being better for more people around the world. And government entities start to hear and you go from below the radar to on the radar and you have a Gmail account. They have access to all your emails, all your communications, all your contacts. It even bothers me that when it's rainmaking time goes on YouTube, that anybody that comments or sends anything immediately is locked onto that email account. So I don't even use it. People can write whatever they want. I never respond. I never deal with it. And the other thing that's of grave concern is the level of core integration. So when you're online, let's say you're looking at Huffington Post, that connects to Twitter, connects to Facebook. Everything is all interconnected. How do you unconnect it? Once you're connected, even now Skype has changed. They say, now, would you like to talk to your Facebook friends? Who knows what's going on? The other thing is that I was told a year and a half ago that Windows 7 has a backdoor to NSA. I don't know. I don't know any of that. I also have nothing to hide and nothing to worry about. But the fact that there's backdoors, the fact that things are all integrated, the fact that governments can come and collect whatever they want, whenever they want, never even tell you, it's an unequal playing field. In fact, it's like David and Goliath. Things are stacked up against activists, stacked up against whistleblowers, and we need whistleblowers around the world desperately, desperately. And people put their lives on the line. It very much worries me that whistleblowing is being criminalized. It worries me deeply that you can go to a journalist and force them to give up the sources or jail them. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's another thing that I'm extremely concerned about. Uh, and uh, I wasn't really aware of how bad the situation was until um, I started to work uh, on both, uh, you know, the Icelandic Modern Mediunity, which is uh, an attempt to create a safe haven for freedom of information, expression and speech in one spot. Part of that law is whistleblowing legislation uh, for Iceland. And it actually... Parts of it were inspired by the U.S. whistleblowing uh, laws because of the development under the Obama administration on criminalizing whistleblowing. We've had to reconsider it and, and look at laws from elsewhere because you used to have beautiful laws, uh, but they are all being taken away from you, uh, which is very sad to see. I think at this day and age, uh, I totally agree with you. Whistleblowers are so important, but also The protection of sources is so important that you should not be able to force journalists to give up their sources. Like one of the things people don't realize in the WikiLeaks case is that if you go after WikiLeaks, which is sort of used to be like the middleman that accepted the envelope, looked at the uh, like the envelope from the whistleblowers, uh, looked at the content, and then determined if this was valid or not, or if it had any relevance to the general public. Uh, and then passed it on to some of the biggest medias in our world. If WikiLeaks is going to be taken down, the line has shortened for other medias to be uh, on the persecution list if they publish something that is not to the liking of governments. And uh, I I think I've been puzzled why journalists in the United States have not stepped up 
for WikiLeaks in this case, and that they have not stepped up for the whistleblower that's been in jail now for two years. For a whole year, this whistleblower was a subject of torture, and still the uh, UN uh, Commissioner for um, uh, Human Rights has not been giving access to this prisoner, and this is why my parliamentary group decided to send a letter to the Nobel Peace Prize Committee nominating this whistleblower to raise awareness about the fact that he has been in these conditions. And at the same time, uh, another private uh, has been acquitted from killing 24 civilians in Iraq. He's never been to jail. And the people that we see are shooting the civilians in the video collateral murder, none of them has had to suffer any consequences of these war crimes. These are the war crimes that we witnessed in this video, uh, where they shoot a wounded man and the people trying to help him. And I think we have to go beyond looking at people from different races as unequal to us as well. But I, I'm, I'm deeply concerned, and that's why I'm doing everything that I can humanly possibly do to raise awareness about the situation for whistleblowers in our world. And I think we do need websites uh, of the same nature as WikiLeaks if the path to the journalist is no longer safe. Uh, and it would be very stressful for a whistleblower knowing, like, if I leak this information, I am going to be putting the journalist in danger of being imprisoned or he's going to have to reveal who I am. And the reason why we need whistleblowers now is the fact that the corporations are always growing bigger and bigger. And their defense teams, their lawyer departments are now uh, not only national, but they are international. And they know how to cross and abuse jurisdiction from all over the world to stop us getting access to information about their criminal activities. It's so heavy what's going on, really, because in a way, what it's telling us is there isn't a safe haven for journalists anymore. We have to create it or invoke it or legalize it and set up a totally different structure and probably multi-levels of jurisdiction. But in my experience, it seems to me that peer pressure and the culture of fear and of criminalizing people who think differently, who are not buying into this endless terrorism problem, quote, end quote, then you're really stepping outside of the way we're being programmed to think and to function. And peer pressure being what it is today, it would look like if we're not standing with the agenda of the government, the grid of that thinking and that paradigm, that we're supposedly against the government or we're treasonous to the government, that thinking is old guard mentality. You don't have to be against something to be for something else. And so these exactly. distinctions have blurred, but I really think that most people are subject to tremendous influences and peer pressure on a number of levels, and they want to be liked, and they want to be accepted, and they want to be part of their groups. And so unless they're willing to dislodge from all that, people do not operate their own minds. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I, I actually, I once uh, translated a really uh, good book that goes very, um, from English to Icelandic, that goes very much into this. It's called The Four Agreements by uh, Don Mikael Ruiz. Great book. It's incredible. I love it. Uh, and it was such a privilege to translate it because I got really deep into the uh, message in it. And at the same time, you know, even if 
And I do hope that our listeners are not feeling really uh, hopeless by listening to us on this issue. I have to stress that there is tremendous hope uh, and uh, an incredible movement of people awakening and acting, not only awakening in their own space, but understanding that the only change we will ever have is by becoming co-creators of our own realities. We are never going to live in the world we dream of unless we participate in shaping it. And the beauty of that reality is that there are so many people realizing this. And you can see it throughout the United States with all the Occupy movements. There are so many incredible people working there together. And then they are also outreaching to all the different activists from all over the world. And we just don't get news of it. There are protests every day, massive protests and Occupy events and civil disobedience and alternative ways of doing things. It's happening everywhere, every day, all over the globe. And I think we sometimes might feel a little bit desperate because we don't know that there are so many people awakening. We don't know of them. But I have been following this very closely. And I think that, you know, the next steps that we're going to be taking, you know, and I'm hoping that Iceland can actually, um, because we were the first to have a breakdown and realization that everything we trusted failed us when we had uh, the world's fourth worst financial meltdown. Uh, we had four big banks and they all collapsed at the same time, <laughs> just a few years after they'd been privatized. And so everything we trusted to look after us failed. And that made people realize, very many people, that the time of trusting blindly in a system that has outgrown itself and is only self-serving, that time has to stop. And we have to figure out ways to make a new social agreement. Now, this is not happening with everybody, but at least the consequences of this in Iceland has been that the people of Iceland rewrote our constitution for the people of Iceland. The parliament is now processing it and preparing it to go into a national referendum. And in the new constitution, we will have that 10% of the nation can call for a national referendum. 10% of the nation can put forward a law that the parliament has to process. And I just came off a meeting with these guys. There are a couple of guys that started this initiative of making a website with a, a direct democracy function that our capital city has decided to use this platform. And every month they take the five top suggestions from the citizens uh, and process it through the legal processes in the city. And next month there's going to be a new experiment with this where the citizens uh, of the, the city can... Uh, vote on how they want to use the budget from the city in their neighborhoods. So there are some pretty awesome things happening. Uh, it's not all doom and gloom, but we Thank all God. have to participate in our societies or nothing is going to change. And it's just going to go further and further down the this road we were discussing earlier. And I really encourage people, anybody, to understand that it's not enough just to sit and meditate. Uh, you know, then we can all just move to caves again and just sit and meditate. You have to use that clarity you get through your meditation to put it into action in your day-to-day -day life and in your communities. That's the only way we're going to change anything. I've been on a sort of spiritual path all my life, 
I practice Buddhism and uh, I've done meditation and self-help and God knows what and yoga and, and, you know, all the things that are helpful to gain clarity. And I realized that you have to use the clarity and the compassion and the gratitude you feel in this space and share it in your community because it's just going to get stagnant if it's only moving inside of you. I think it's important to practice your Buddhism in your day-to-day life. It's not enough just to chant. <laughs> Even if it's really nice, I love to do it, but it's not enough. You know? it, that only makes me feel good. And I think many of us in the West have not understood you know, that often we are just doing things to please ourselves, whereas Buddhism teaches that we're learning compassion for everybody, not just our friends, but for everybody. And we need to develop our heart. It's so important. We have developed our minds so much that we have gotten lost in it. I think this is so important. I remember I saw like The Secret a while ago, and I remember the thing, you know, I understand the law of attraction, but I don't like the message that you should be using the law of attraction to get a big car, you know. (laughs) And finally, on this note, I would really encourage people to see the film Thrive, which is an excellent film. And it really explains, for example, free energy and so forth. And the forces we're dealing with, we are dealing with very, very heavy forces. And thus we have to unify our efforts for change. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the engagement part of what you're talking about, which is not only to clear ourselves and to center ourselves, but to act, to go out into the world and do something with it. However, this engagement for many people, particularly in an activism realm, there's a lot of people that are ready and wanting to be of service and wanting to do something, but it's in the realm of the doing that there's confusion. There's also, within the realm of doing, a great deal of apathy and hopelessness and feeling like nothing's going to make a difference and that on an individual level, all efforts will be thwarted or muted. I believe a lot of times it's subconscious for people. But in terms of the doing, it's interesting when you watch the CNN or other stations on television here in the United States, when they show the Occupy movement, any type of Occupy in any city, They're constantly showing images of police using pepper spray and hitting people and barreling people to the ground. And there's always this dialogue about how horrible the occupiers are and how they're ruining the areas that they're occupying. This is so pervasive in terms of the general conversation and the millions of people that watch CNN and other stations. I'm not demonizing CNN. But it makes it very scary and nerve-wracking for people like, okay, that's not working and I'm going to get jailed or hurt badly. So first of all, courage to all the people that are standing up for something that they're trying to make a difference in. But also, interestingly enough, when Thich Nhat was in town several years ago, and he's in town every year, by the way, but this one Mm -hmm. year... I did a walk with him, and I think there was a few thousand people. We did a walk for peace. It was totally quiet, totally quiet. You could hear a pin drop. There were a few police around, but it was so powerful. There wasn't any yelling. There wasn't anything. It was so unbelievable. It's a different kind of power. It's a different kind of communication. And everybody was very aligned and very much in the feeling tone of peace, walking in peace, quiet. Now, I realize not everything can be like that, 
But it was a very interesting demonstration of the power of being in the compassion, being in the peace, doing the walk, standing with others for something that for many people looks impossible. I mean, let's face it, people collectively feel or have ingested this collective ethos that peace is impossible on a lot of levels. Oh, there'll always be wars. That's just humanity. That's how it's been for civilizations. And that consciousness actually continues to keep the thing going. But what do you think about what I'm saying about the way it's being shown on television keeps a lot of people from showing up and also the apathy and the feeling that people don't matter. How else are you going to matter? So it's in the how do you matter part. What is the most optimal for influencing and making things better? I'd like to know if you could speak to that a little bit. Right. I want to take an example how I got very active in relation to Tibet. I've been concerned about Tibet for, you know, 25 years. Ever since I saw a very remarkable documentary by a Danish journalist that smuggled herself into Tibet and recorded the horrible things that we were being done against Tibetans and the Tibetan environment. And I really wanted to do something. I had no idea, you know, what to do. Then some years later, I read Dalai Lama's biography and I felt the same thing. You know, I really want to do something, but what can I do? I ended up writing him a letter that I never sent. But I was always sending out this message. I really want to do something. And I didn't know what to do. And then around the Olympics, I went on a Facebook page, which was for there was a peace march from India to Tibet on the 50th year anniversary of the uprising in Tibet. And you had all these monks and they were carrying signs of Dalai Lama and Gandhi. And they were walking just like you were describing peacefully towards Tibet. And what made me start to act was that I watched the Indian police forcing them, just like the images from the Occupy protests, forcing the monks out of their walk into a prisoner bus. And it looked really violent. And at the same time, I knew that these monks would never be violent, but it looked violent on the photos. And I thought, you know, how is this possible? You know, they're carrying signs of Gandhi. They're peaceful. They're walking peacefully to raise awareness about the situation in Tibet. And they are brutally arrested. So this was the thing that turned me over. And I thought, no, that's it. I, I just can't sit here at home and do nothing. And then I was hearing about the, the killing and the beatings of the monks in Lhasa. And so what I did was I basically just called some friends I knew that were sort of active and asked them, can you help me? I'm going to have a protest outside the uh, Chinese embassy to raise awareness about the situation in Tibet and get the Icelandic press at least to write about it and to get the Chinese authorities to know that not Icelanders are just going to sit by and, and do nothing when uh, these things are happening in Tibet. And this ended up being like ongoing nine months protest every week i would go to the embassy and protest and i had lots of people come massive press coverage and it actually resulted uh, one of the members we created friends of tibet and iceland and one of the people from our group called the finance minister from iceland when she heard that he was going to china to speak to the chinese finance minister and she said you're going to have to address the situation in tibet he actually he said yes and he had uh, his staff 
called me because I was the chairman of the Friends of Tibet in Iceland and asked me to gather information about the situation in Tibet, which I did and with the help of uh, one of my Tibetan friends in Iceland. There are only five. <laughs> we put together a package of information, sent it to him, and what he did was that he addressed the Tibet issue in China to his peer, the finance minister. He got in such trouble, but he did it. So you see, there is no one way. You will know when you just cannot sit at home any longer and do nothing. And you will find your way if you're determined to do it. You know, when the Iraqi war was starting, you know, I felt compelled to go out and do something. I felt that I really, like, if enough of us would go and try to stop it beforehand, we might just be able to do it. And we nearly did. We were so close. And now we're having the same script being handed over to us in relation to the Iran war. Are we going to sit home or we're going to put more effort into it before it's too late? Because we can't stop it. Because we are the state. And people have to remember this. We are the government. We are the state. And so if we are many more than they are, and if we can organize ourselves to show that we are many more, we can do various types of protests. We can do info evenings. We can take over our community halls and show documentaries there are so many incredible documentaries about the consequences of war. So I, th I think we can all find our comfort zone in doing action. You know, there are so many different ways we can help to uh, shape our communities. But people should never go outside their comfort zone. Now, I have to say, I've been following also the protests uh, very closely and watching uh, live videos from the various occupied camps. And, you know, usually they're just pretty peaceful. In New York, they had a, a massive soup kitchen for all the homeless people, and they were there for ages. They had a beautiful library. There were people doing yoga there. You know, people were doing all sorts of things, and they were connecting, and they were being inspired. And it is so important. We're not going to do this revolution, evolution on our own. We're going to do it with others, and it's so important. Where does your courage come from? Seriously, and I don't want to leave that out because... It requires not only being called to do something, it also requires a decision in the realm of courage. So where do you draw your courage from? To be honest, I have no idea. I, I just, I don't really know fear. You know, I just, I really don't care what people think about me. Not enough, at least. It does impact me a little bit, but never enough to stop me from doing what I feel needs to be done. And I think we all have this in us. But many of us have been conditioned to not listening to our hearts and intuition. One of the things that helped me the most is I've always known what I want. I've always known exactly what I want. When I decided I was a poet when I was 14, my mission was to get my first book published by Iceland's biggest publisher. And then I achieved that when I was like 21 or something. And then I thought, oh, my dream is too small. <laughs> And then I rethought what I wanted to do, and I determined to myself that I wanted to have an impact, a positive impact uh, on my world. And I just did it in my little ways. I think if people know where they're going, they will go there. But you have to know, I think my biggest strength is I understood very early on that if I don't help my neighbor put the fire out in his house, 
my house is going to get on fire. And this, you know, in general terms means that I care for other people enough to go out and uh, help them, even if it's not about my own need. I don't know where I learned these things. I've always known that if I'm suffering, going out and helping somebody that's suffering more is going to make me feel a lot better. (laughs) I really appreciate your personal candor. At the time in which some of these videos, like collateral murder and other types of information where all of these emails were leaked of people that were in government, let's say here in the United States, mm-hmm. part of the criminalization of this type of activity, I believe, comes from a blanket assumption of ownership and jurisdiction of everything from the government's perspective. And therefore, people that are peace-oriented, that are trying to make the world a better place and not supporting war and secrecy, etc., are considered enemies to a military-industrial complex. The fact that collateral murder was released without military permission is being turned into an enemy act to that military and to that military-industrial complex from the government and military perspective even though it's a total violation of human rights and what happened was an atrocity of galactic nature. There's a baseline assumption, and that is that everything and anything goes, and it's their prerogative. This is really paradigms and consciousness that are not in coherence with each other. That's why laws are created to demonize people that are standing, if you will, outside of the grid, of the military-industrial complex consciousness. This is really a fight for consciousness. I understand the independent wins, the good things that can happen along the way to ultimate change, and that a butterfly in one part of the world can impact what's happening in another part of the world. That's how sensitive we all are. That's how sensitive everything is. So change can happen in a moment's notice, and everything can become different. I think that's part of the good news that you're talking about. It's not like there has to be hundreds of years of hell to get a little bit of change. A major change of consciousness can happen in a moment, in a moment where everything becomes different. And to be indwelling in that while we're doing whatever we're doing that can make the world a better place and make life better, I'm in total agreement with. With respect to this ownership issue, what do you think about the fact that consciousness in terms of the military paradigm is ownership oriented and everything and anything goes. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting uh, way of seeing it and sort of makes sense. Uh, And I think that it's important to know that, you know, within this complex, there are many great people. You know, there are many great uh, soldiers that have actually started to uh, blow the whistle on how things really were within the war and the impact it had on them. But, you know, when you look at the big matrix around both the corporate and military complex and just power in general, you know, there's nothing that corrupts a person more than power if you are not uh, humble with it. So you have this incredible power in relation to the, the military complex. And, of course, those that have power don't want to give it away, you know, And it's really up to us to create a counterbalance, to have enough people to create a counterbalance of ownership of what is ours. 
you know, I call these times we're living at uh, times of quickening where everything happens really quickly. You think one thing and all of a sudden it's just happening. <laughs> you know, like in my case, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, it would be so great to speak to this person. This person has inspired me so much. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm talking to the person that I would never have dreamt of having a chance to speak to. I've had lunch with the Dalai Lama. You know, I never, I never started my work for debate to have lunch with Dalai Lama, but that was a, an incredibly um, big bonus. So I think we have to remember the word revolution and we have to put the R into brackets and look at what is left of the word and that's evolution. So with the revolting spirit, which is the spirit of change, of movement, out of the stagnation, we will counterbalance what we need to counterbalance. We feel we're under siege, but we're not. That is a perspective. So everything will change the way we change our perspective. And it all starts within us. Nothing's ever going to change unless we start inside ourselves and we have that revolution in our own heart. And we revolutionize how we do things in our daily lives. This is so important. We are so incredibly powerful and we are much more powerful when we work with others. Then our power is magnified. Just like when you chant with somebody, when you chant alone and then you chant with three, the difference is phenomenal. The same if you do meditation with people, you know, more than one, it's, it's incredible how it magnifies. And the same things applies to all our actions. And I think the only thing to keep in mind is that we're acting out of our heart, our gratitude towards all what life is. But we have to apply action to it. And it's not scary. There is so much power in your action if you do it with the right intent. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to find out more about Birgitta, the member of the Icelandic Parliament for the movement and activist and poet and inside and outside the system, you can go to her website, this.is slash Birgitta, B-I-R-G-I-T-T-A. And Birgitta, is there any place else they can find out more about you? If they want to have a look at the Icelandic Modern Media Initiative, they can go to immi.is and then they can just go on YouTube. There are massive amounts of videos with interviews and stuff uh, if they're interested. So, And they can even find some music I've done and everything. And books that you've written. Name your books, by the way. I've done one big book of poetry and art called Wake Up. And if you go to this.is slash poems, you can find some of the books I've made. I like to hand make them. I haven't published uh, any books in English. I did a novel in Icelandic, but uh, I haven't done anything uh, like that in English yet. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for being with us. And I want to invite you back in about four months. I think the next four to five months are going to be very pivotal in the world. And I just want to tell you how much I appreciate who you are and what you're doing, your mission and your calling. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to speak to you again. Would you chant three of my favorite words with me? (laughs) I'll tell you what they are. (laughs) It's rainmaking time. Are you ready? It's It's rainmaking time. time.